Romans chapter 7. If you've not yet turned there in your Bibles, you can also find those verses in your concise bulletins uh, today. Romans chapter 7, we're going to look at the first six verses. Remember where we've been, I think, over the past year or so, maybe? We've been walking through this book, and we've seen different parts of theology. You might even say different sections of soteriology, the theology of salvation. We saw chapter 1, verse 18, on through almost the end of chapter 3, a section called condemnation. This is the judgment that we each fall under God because of our sin. That we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, therefore we are condemned or judged for that sin. But then chapter 3, verse 21, into chapter 4, we saw some good news. Justification. We saw that if we place our faith in Jesus and repent of our sins, that we are declared righteous, that Christ gives us his righteousness. We have a new standing before him. We are right before God. And now we've moved from condemnation to justification. And now we've been in this section called sanctification. It's this process whereby which we grow in holiness. We grow to look more like Jesus. We grow in our love for Christ, love for others. And so it's in that section that we still find ourselves in today. And again in a couple weeks as we will finish chapter 7. And then in the new year as we'll walk through the glorious chapter 8 of Romans. And then conclude this section on sanctification. I have three points this morning that flow just directly out of the text. I'll give them to you now, but I'll, I'll share them again as we go. Three today. Number one, we'll see a new freedom from the law. A new freedom from the law. Number two, a new relationship with Christ. And three, we'll see... New life with Christ. So, number one, a new freedom. Number two, a new relationship. And number three, a new life. Well, let's start with number one, a new freedom from the law. Look again at verses one through three. Or do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Paul begins in verse 1, again addressing the Romans in a familial way. Paul loves the Romans. He has an affection for the Romans. He calls the Romans brothers and he asks them for a third time, do you not know? He asked that same question in chapter 6. Once regarding baptism and the other slavery. Those were the two chief illustrations of chapter 6. 
Now he asks if they know the limitations of the law. Paul mentions release from the law three times in our text. And one commentator points out the obvious that in some way Paul actually refers to the law in all six of these verses. In verse 1, Paul points out the obvious. He assumes the readers know that the law only has jurisdiction over one's life while they're alive. The phrase binding on has the meaning of authority. The law has authority over the person, but the authority is limited to one's life. Death releases someone from the law. What exactly is the law Paul speaks about here? Scholar Leon Morris is helpful. He writes, some see a reference to the law of Moses, the law that meant so much to the Jews, but Paul is surely speaking of all law. Believers are through with the law. It is not for them an option as a way of salvation. They do not seek to be right with God by obeying some form of the law as the inheritance of almost all religions have done. A person who has died is free from the prescriptions of law. In verses 2 and 3, Paul gives an illustration of that. And he gives an illustration to us from marriage. Death changes one's responsibility toward the law, but it also changes obligations of those with a binding contract with a deceased So Paul's example is that a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. You may have attended probably several wedding ceremonies where the couple being wed share vows. They make vows to one another. And at the end of the vows, they might say something to the effect of, I promise to be faithful to you until death do us part. That vow is a kind of contract. It's a binding promise. But if one partner should die, then that widow or widower is free in God's eyes to be married again. The woman is released from the law of marriage. The same would go the other way around. If the wife dies, the husband would be free from the law of marriage. Now this is not the text's main point. The illustration is not Paul's main point, but just a very quick excursus. Let me address marriage briefly. It's clear in this text and in many others that when a spouse dies, a Christian is able, according to the word of God, to remarry. That may sound obvious to some of us in the room, but some wrongly teach that even after death, a man or woman must not marry again. That teaching seems to be in opposition to what Paul is saying here. Of course, Paul is using marriage as an illustration. He's not mainly teaching on it, but in the instruction in the course of this text, Paul says that death frees that man or that woman from the marriage bond. Being free from that bond means an allowance to be married again. This is consistent with the teaching throughout the scriptures. Now, these verses aren't anywhere near a complete teaching on marriage. Paul writes nothing about divorce and remarriage or when divorce 
and remarriage may be permissible. Paul doesn't speak to that in this text. That's another teaching for another day. That's another sermon for another day. It's not part of Paul's illustration here. Paul's point in the text is that the law binds the wife to her husband, but his death frees her. The release is complete. The Greek verb to release is quite strong here. It has more of the idea of destruction. The point, the woman's status as the dead man's wife is completely destroyed. It's completely abolished. She is no longer his wife. The two are no longer married. Well, Paul concludes his illustration and says, If the woman marries another man while her husband is alive, well, she is an adulteress. But if her husband dies and she remarries, she's not an adulteress because that contract has been destroyed. It's been abolished. She's free from those vows. The bond is broken. What made the difference? Well, her husband's death, of course. The second is legitimate because the first marriage has been terminated. Well, what do these verses mean? Well, verse 4 tells us, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, we'll be coming back and forth to verse 4 in the rest of the sermon, but Paul comes back here to the law of God from verse 1, verses 2 and 3. He gives us the illustration of marriage. And now he's going to explain that in verse 4. Before following Christ, the law claimed a, a jurisdiction over our lives. Paul implies we were previously married to the law and we were under its authority. But as death terminates an earthly marriage, we also died to the law through the body of Christ. This is so we may belong to another. Or you might say this has happened to us so that we might marry another. The first illustration, a spouse died, but we have a shift here. It's not parallel. It goes off in a different direction. The woman is free from the law when the husband dies. We might expect Paul to say something different here. We might expect Paul to say she's free from the law when the law Dies, but Paul doesn't say the law dies. Instead, he says, we've died. He says, we've died, so our marriage to the law has died. The point is that there's been a death. And there's a death that can bring us freedom from the law. The law of God exposed us. Our sin was obvious. The law is like a mirror. We said that in this uh, book of Romans sermon series. I've mentioned it a couple of times. One of the purposes of the law, one of the uses of the law, the law is like a mirror. It reflects to us who we are. When we look at the law, we see just how lost we are. It opens our eyes to the truths about ourselves. We're lost without hope in this world. Dead. But there's good news in verse 4. The law condemned us, but we are redeemed by the one who does keep the law. By the one who keeps the law perfectly. 
Jesus is our substitute. Paul sees that because we've died with him, we've died to the law as a way of salvation. The law could never save. We could never look to the law to save us, past, present, or future. And yet this is what every other world religion teaches, doesn't it? Some way of working to God. Some way of being good enough to get to God. There's a ladder. And at the top of the ladder is God, or gods, or some supernatural being. And what we do, says every other religion, is that we spend our whole lives trying to climb up that ladder of our good works and of our apparent righteousness, trying to get to God. We climb up the ladder of our own righteousness, but what happens is we keep failing and we keep falling. Maybe we take a step or two, but there are a million steps up that ladder. More than a million. There are infinite steps up to the ladder. We can never get to the top on our own. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I do wonder how many of you have been up to the viewing deck at the Burj Khalifa. Now, I've been up before, I think, to floor 123. 124. I think now maybe you can even go higher. And it's a nice view from the Burj Khalifa, the world's tallest building. You can look out and you can see all kinds of other buildings around you. But there's a view that I have enjoyed that's far more spectacular than that from downtown Dubai. It's not on the viewing deck of the Burj Khalifa, but it's a viewing experience that's free. You don't have to buy a ticket for it. But what you do is you just go out there at the Dubai Mall and you just go as close as you can to the Burj Khalifa, to the base of the Burj Khalifa, and you just look up. Has anyone, anyone ever done that? It's free. I know some of you have taken selfies of yourself in the Burj Khalifa, some of you many times, but you just stand there at the base of the Burj Khalifa and you look up. And that has got to be one of the most spectacular views because the building, it looks like it goes up forever, doesn't it? It looks like it touches the sky because it really does touch the sky. The ladder of the law is taller than even that. The ladder of the law is infinitely high, and yet century after century, all other world religions try to climb that ladder of the law by following the letter of the law. The problem is the ladder never ends. The law wasn't meant to provide a way of salvation. It never was. It was like that mirror. It doesn't save, but it shows. It can't save us from our sins, but it does show us our sins. As Martin Luther has said, the law was meant to drive us to Christ. If you live under the law without its intended purpose, you'll be forever anxious. No idea where you're standing before God is. No idea whether you're saved or not. You'll constantly be trying to save yourself and failing time and time again. You're not living the way you're meant to live. Christian friends, we've died to the law. It's in the passive tense here in verse 4, it shows us that it's God who's done it. God has done what we could not do for ourselves. 
through the body of Christ, that means through his life, and then through his resurrection from the dead, we are released from the bondage of the law. We've been set free from the commanding authority of the law. We're free from the law of the old covenant because now we belong to the new covenant. But take the Ten Commandments, for example. We still follow nine of them, the Sabbath excluded, because they're repeated in the New Testament. Scholar Doug Moo writes, What all this means in practice then is that we should look to the New Testament for those commandments that express God's moral will for us as New Covenant Christians. Its teachings, properly interpreted, are to be obeyed. But this does not mean that we should no longer read the Old Testament law. It remains God's Word, given as all Scripture for our enlightenment. Friends, all of God's Word is profitable for us. This doesn't mean we don't read the law or gain something from the law or follow uh, what uh, the, the heart of what's at the law. So it's why we read the second half of the book of Exodus. It's why we read slowly the book of Leviticus. It's why we see the holiness of God as a central theme in Leviticus. And it's why for some of us in our Bible reading plans, we might think Leviticus is a little boring. But I assure you, it's not boring. You might find it a bit repetitive, offering after offering, sacrifice after sacrifice, law after law. But the repetitive nature of it, what might seem boring about it, is actually what's striking about it. The reason they perform sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice is because it didn't do it. It was never complete. They always had to do another sacrifice because it didn't finally and fully forgive them of their sins. But what we don't do here on Sundays is we don't bring some lamb up front and slaughter them. We don't do that anymore because the true lamb of God has come. Jesus has come. Those lamb that were slaughtered there in the Old Testament, they point, they were pointers to the one true lamb of God who would come. Well, friends, the good news of Jesus, the good news of the gospel tells us that we need we needed to climb that ladder to God, but we failed. However, Jesus' life and death are a new ladder for us. Maybe you've heard that Jesus is, is the bridge for us from one mountaintop across a valley to the Father on the other side, that he's a bridge, a bridge that we can never cross on our own. Well, he's also a ladder. Jesus is a ladder, brings us to God the Father. We get to God through Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. We experience a new freedom from the law through Christ. We experience a new freedom from the law through Christ. That's the first point in our text this morning. The second point is that we experience a new relationship with Christ. That's number two. If you're taking notes and just following along, Number two, a new relationship with Christ. Look again at verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. The purpose of our dying or in our text, one of the purposes of our dying with Christ is that we now belong to Christ. 
want us to pause and think about this for a moment. Christian, you belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. Children, tweens, and teens, I don't know if this still happens at school today, but when I was a kid and we had what we called recess or free time, we'd go outside and I would always play basketball or football, or some of us call it soccer, and we'd go out and usually there would be two team captains. Sometimes they were the, the best players, the most outgoing players, they would pick teams. Of course, you'd always want to get on a good team, but even more important than that, you'd want to be picked pretty early on. Okay, you never wanted to be that last kid picked. Maybe we've all been there. I know, I've been there. You're standing around, and eventually this person gets picked, and everybody's getting picked, and you're just, your shoulders are kind of shrugged down, and you're just, you're just hoping, please pick me. Don't pick me last. Don't pick me last. And... It's embarrassing to be picked last. I would know. I was the new kid a lot. I moved around about 15 times growing up, and so lots of times I was the new kid, and I knew what it was like to be picked last. This is not what God does with us. We're not the leftover pick. He doesn't take us because he has to. All Christians are like that first player chosen. Christian, God has chosen you from before time began. All of us are first picks. God is that first captain, and he's chosen all believers from all times to be with him, to belong to Christ. He's chosen us. We belong to him, and there's nothing we can do to get kicked off his team. He upholds us. He keeps us. He protects us. He brings us to the end. We belong to him while we're here on earth. And one day, one day, there will be the most incredible party. There'll be a day when the most incredible party will begin. Jesus will come back for his people. There'll be a new heavens, a new earth. And this is going to be a party that's going to last for all eternity. This lavish buffet will be better than any iftar banquet you've ever been to. There will be millions of believers. Now, we get a taste here at Redeemer, don't we? We get a taste every single Sunday when we gather and we just look around for a moment. And I met someone this morning in the first service who afterwards told me that it felt like a little taste of heaven being here this morning. That's probably the number one piece of feedback that we get when there's a visitor, when there's someone who comes in for the first time. Because you look around, and we have the nations gathered here. But I'll tell you what, on that day, on that day, when eternity is rushed in, and we are, we are rushed into eternity, and we will not just be gathered with those of us in this room and from these nations. We're going to be gathered with all people, all believers from all tribes, tongues, 
peoples and nations. And we'll be together. And friend, it'll be a a great day because we're going to be together. We're going to be unified. There will be no envy. There will be no strife. There's going to be no more sin, no temptation, no death. We're not going to be anxious about death. We're not going to be anxious about anything. There's going to be no stress. There's going to be no worry, no depression. Best of all, best of all, because we belong to Christ, we're going to be there with God. We're going to be there with our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We're going to be there with Him. To belong to Jesus means to be united with Christ, to be united with Him. Becoming a Christian is a complete change in relationship and allegiance. Tim Keller writes of these verses, What an incredible metaphor. We are married to Christ. To be a Christian is to fall in love with Jesus and to enter into a legal yet personal relationship as comprehensive as marriage. Because when you get married, no part of your life goes unaffected. Paul is saying you're either married to the law or you're married to Christ. Spiritually speaking, you cannot be unmarried. That's the emphasis here. Redeemer Church, this is good news for us. And if you're here and you're not yet a believer, this is good news for you too. If you're visiting us today, there's a way to be united with Christ, even though all of us have sinned. Every single one of us, from everybody who's been here up on the platform this morning to everybody sitting in the congregation, and everybody from Adam and Eve, the first two humans, on to today, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us have broken God's law. The first command from God to his people in the Bible, to Adam and Eve, they broke that command. They broke that law, and ever since, all humans have disobeyed God. We all thought we knew better than God. Lawbreakers. But Jesus, God in the flesh, came to this earth, and he followed the law perfectly. He never sinned. It was Jesus who kept the law. And here's what's exciting. Believers, by repenting of your sin and placing your trust in Jesus, you become united with Christ. And so at the end of his life, when Jesus goes to the cross, when he's crucified on the cross, it's as if you and I were crucified on that cross. And when Jesus was raised from the dead on that third day, it's as if we were raised with Jesus on the third day. Because we were. As believers, we were raised with Christ. Why? Well, because we're united to Christ. We belong to him. What's his is ours. United to him. Believers are credited with Christ's account. His righteousness imputed or given to us. What's his becomes ours. We're declared righteous. Freed from the penalty of sin. Freed from death and judgment. Christian, you are united with Christ. If you don't know Jesus, turn to him. If you don't know Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. You're most welcome to be here anytime. You follow a different religion, that's okay. Maybe you're investigating Jesus. Maybe you've been coming for a while and you've been hearing the Bible taught. Maybe this is the first time you've ever been in a church service. You are most welcome here. Doesn't matter what 
country your passport was issued from. It doesn't matter your parents' background. It doesn't matter what you did last week. It doesn't matter what sin you committed last night. All of us, all of you are welcome here. And I'm so glad that you're here today. I'm so glad you're here to, to, to hear this message. If you don't know Jesus, there's hope. Turn to him. Turn from your sin. Ask him for forgiveness and trust in him to save you. And he will. You can't save yourself by yourself. You can't save yourself by yourself. You can't keep the law, but Jesus has done that for you. And that's the best news. Turn to him, have a new relationship with Christ, and when you do, you always have a new way of life. That's the third and final point this morning from our text. Number three, a new way of life. When we belong to him and when we're united with Christ, Yes, we know our salvation is complete. Yes, we know that we will be with them one day. But we also have a new way of life here on earth. We'll see this in verses 5 and 6, and then we'll look back at verse 4 again. But let me read verses 5 and 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Well, the ultimate purpose, belonging to Christ, we see at the end of verse 4, if you look back briefly, is that we might bear fruit for God. But before we were united to Christ, we lived in the flesh. Paul writes, here in verse 5, that the law aroused our sinful passions that were at work within us. The law exposes our sin, but Paul also says the law arouses our sin. This is how evil we are without Christ. Is that when we see the law of God and we're told what not to do, we're not only compelled not to listen but we're compelled to do the very thing that God tells us not to do. The law itself arouses within us a desire to not do it. My parents' pastor, his name is Chuck Swindoll, he once told a story about one of the first high-rise hotels to be built on the Texas coast in the U.S. The building sat directly above the Gulf of Mexico, right up on the beach, right up on the water. It was so close to the water that the owners and managers of the hotel, they worried about people from their windows and from their balconies fishing off the balconies directly into the water. They worried that the hit with the heavy winds that those large lead sinkers at the end there of their fishing line would crash into the first story or there the ground story glass windows where breakfast was being had and where the lobby was and so because of this fear before the hotel opened the hotel management came up with a solution 
So every single hotel room that was facing the ocean, right there on the beach over the ocean, they put up a sign next to the window. They put up a sign which said, absolutely no fishing from the balcony. Absolutely no fishing from the window. What do you think happened? Guests in the ground floor restaurant dined to the frequent smack of lead weights against the glass windows. Sometimes the glass actually cracked. Finally, the management realized their error, and they made a wise decision. Guess what they did? They went back in those rooms, and they simply removed all the signs in those guest rooms. That's it. That's all it took, and no one ever fished from those balconies again. The law aroused people's sin. It's why when we see a do not enter sign, what do we feel like doing? We want to go in. A do not trespass sign might as well be a please come in whenever you'd like sign. The law exposes our sin, but Paul says the law also arouses our sin. That's how wicked we are. Our flesh is opposed to the law, our flesh is opposed to God and his teaching without Christ. Therefore, we bore fruit for death, poisonous fruit. When we try to do good works apart from God and follow the law, we produce poisonous fruit, fruit that only hurts ourselves, fruit that only hurts others. It's the law that verse 6 says we were once held captive to. It's the idea of being kidnapped. You're taken hostage. You've got no way out. We've seen an allusion of this back in Isaiah 61. Paul's echoing what Isaiah says when he says, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. When you turn to Christ, you're freed from captivity. And now looking back at the end of verse 4, we belong to God. Why? Well, there's a reason Paul gives at the end of the verse. We belong to God in order so that we may bear fruit for God. In verse 6, we bear fruit for God by serving in the new way of the Spirit. It's amazing that when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit of God actually resides within us. And we are empowered by the Spirit to bear fruit for God. And the way you bear fruit for God, the only way you bear fruit for God is by marriage to Christ or union with Christ. The law failed to do this, but we bear good fruit in Christ. Now our family traveled to another part of the U.S. a couple of years ago to the Pacific Northwest. It's beautiful there. There's no sand, but there's lots of green. Lots of grass, lots of beautiful trees, lots of flowers. And the ocean was amazing. Our friends took us to an island on, in the Puget Sound. It was gorgeous. 
Again, those trees, those flowers, the ocean. But was, what was most amazing for me was the fruit. It was everywhere, especially these huge blackberries. They were about this big. You can tell that I've lived in the desert for this long when the biggest shock was that we could actually go and pick those blackberries off the tree and eat them. And it was free. And we could eat as many of them as we wanted to. And I ate so many. I think I was full of blackberries because they were so, so good. The best blackberries I've ever tasted. Well, trying to save ourselves by following the law leads to fruit for death, bad fruit. But belonging to Christ leads to fruit for God. And that fruit is good. That fruit is certainly better than those blackberries. That fruit is a spiritual fruit that brings life. Good to you and good to all those around you. And again, we can do this because we have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives inside of us. We have a new way of life, and it leads to good fruit. Well, here's an honest question for us to ask ourselves today. Am I bearing good fruit? Is my life bearing good fruit for God? Because we're all bearing fruit. None of us are exempt from this. We're either bearing bad fruit or good fruit. Those are the only two options. So let me ask you some questions. These are questions you can ask yourself. They're x-ray questions of our hearts. This is a rapid-fire application round, so you won't be able to write all these down, but I want you just to hear them, to, to listen to them, to just have them fall, fall all over you, and to just see if there's any conviction of sin. See how you're doing. Just an x-ray of your own heart. See if these are true of you. When you sin against someone, are you quick to ask forgiveness from them? Do you grieve your sin? Here's what I mean by that. It's not that you're sad at what earthly circumstances come your way because of your sin. But do you honestly grieve your sin? Does it pain you to sin against God? Is that what you're brokenhearted about? Do you pray for matters of eternity? So when you pray, when you go to your prayer time, what are you praying for? What makes the prayer list? Are you praying for the salvation of your family, your friends, for those people who you don't like very much? Are you praying for least reached people groups to know the gospel? Are you praying for spiritual growth? What do you pray for? Do you yearn for heaven? Do you ever just sit back and think about heaven? Do you pray for Jesus to come back? Do you pray for eternity to come? Or are you living like heaven is here on earth? When offended by someone, does bitterness grow in your heart? Or are you quick to forgive? Do you go to bed angry at your spouse, a friend, a co-worker, a laborer in the ministry? 
a sibling, a parent? Are you kind to others? Are you kind with your words? You come here on Sundays looking for ways to encourage with your mouth. Are you refraining from gossiping and slandering others? So, uh, do you talk about people behind their backs? And when you hear others gossip or slander, do you stop it? Do you stop it even there, even if it's a little awkward or embarrassing? Or do you uh, listen in a little extra closely because you want to know some info? Do you share the gospel with non-believers? Do you know that the most loving thing, believer, the most loving thing you can do for a non-believer is to tell them about Jesus? Well, because eternity is the most important thing. We're going to spend eternity either in heaven or hell. People will actually go to heaven or hell. The most loving thing we can do is to tell people about Jesus. Do you share the gospel with others? Do you ever share the gospel with others? Do you do your work with excellence as working unto the Lord? So you go to work, maybe five, maybe even six days a week. Do you go as if God's your boss? Because ultimately, he is. Ultimately, we work for him. Do you resist cheating on exams? Are you nice to other kids at school? Now, I could go on and on. And of course, being a Christian and bearing fruit for God doesn't mean we're perfect. But it absolutely means we're bearing good fruit. Because we serve the new way of the Spirit, and love overflows naturally from a changed heart. We've died to the law through the body of Christ. We belong to Christ. We've been raised from the dead as Christ has been risen. We bear fruit for God, and we serve God in the new way of the Spirit. Friends, because of Jesus, because of Jesus, everything about us is different. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for saving us by the body of Christ. We thank you for saving us by the body of Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Father, we thank you that it is a work that you have done and you alone have done it. That we now serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Father, would you use each of us to bear fruit for you? We once lived in the flesh, but now in the new way of the Spirit. Cause our church to shine brightly in this dark world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.